Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. This podcast series is partially about a violent crime and contains some graphic narrative. Listener discretion is advised. This is Episode 2, Chapters 5 through 8. Chapter 5, Party Line In North Dakota, there were challenges and setbacks. At times, Sheriff Wiest felt like he was operating in a dead zone, and in a way he was. Due to the remoteness of the town of Zeeland, he was having difficulty making radio contact with the outside world. On several occasions, he had to send his deputy out to the edge of town just to get messages out to other agencies. Everyone kept their eyes open, looking for anything even remotely out of the ordinary. Dick Hilde of Minot was not only a BCI special agent, he was also a pilot. While other BCI agents drove to Zealand, Hilde flew overhead. And as he approached south-central North Dakota, he spotted what looked to be an abandoned automobile sitting in a field. He grabbed his comm radio and asked if any agents were near there. Agent Jack Westfall of Minot had been having his own issues just getting to Zealand that afternoon. Outside of the town of Sterling, one of his tires started losing rubber on the hot pavement. He had to stop and change the tire. Once back on the road again, he was just passing Strasburg, North Dakota, when Hildy spotted the suspicious car from the sky. The agent drove down a dirt section line and then pulled into the field. He checked out a 1968 Mercury. He tried all the doors, but they were locked. Nothing really looked out of the ordinary, and Westfall was about to leave when his comm radio cracked again. It was the pilot, Agent Hildy, flying above. Looks like you got company. There's a vehicle heading your way from the south. Westfall looked up and witnessed dust rising along a dirt road. A young man in a pickup truck pulled up to Westfall and asked him what the hell he was doing. Westfall flashed his badge and the kid piped down quick. The car belongs to a local farmer, the kid told him. And so the afternoon went. In Zealand, community members and law enforcement alike snooped and sniffed out any possible area that might bring them answers to what happened to Wade and Ellen. Abandoned barns and farmhouses were explored and tree lines were scanned for any sight of anything at all. When Wade and Ellen's daughter, Nancy Wald, arrived with her family that afternoon, they couldn't go into Wade and Ellen's house. It was a crime scene. So they went to the McIntosh County Bank. They couldn't go inside, so they just stood in front of the bank for a while. It seemed like the logical place to be. In a BCI file, I found two photographs of the Wald family standing in front of the bank at that moment. They are joined there by a few local kids and one or two adults. Nine-year-old Mike Wald, Wade and Ellen's grandson, stands in front of his father, Don, while his sister, Robin, sits on the steps with her paternal grandmother, Grandma Wald. There is a certain level of concern on everyone's faces in these photos, but the most powerful and heartbreaking aspect is the obvious torment that Nancy Wald is enduring at this moment. 
While the others appear to be discussing the situation, Nancy is completely lost in her own dread and worry. She looks obviously detached from the others, unable to partake in the conversation, and as she stares blindly straight ahead, she appears to be biting her thumbnail. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight Season 2, Zealand, the untold story of Wade and Ellen Zick, their lives and their tragic murders in 1976. My name is James Wolner. Sheriff Wiest got his first potential lead in this case a little later. It arrived in part thanks to a lack of modern technology, something called a party line. A command post was being prepared at the Zeeland School. It became a center of buzzing energy where, over area maps spread out hastily on school cafeteria tables, highway patrolmen bumped elbows with deputies, BCI agents, and others. Communication radios cracked and squawked while women from the community set out plates of baked goods and put on pots of coffee. Everyone wanted to find Wade and Ellen before darkness fell. It was into this whirlwind of frenzied activity that a local man entered and peeked through the doorway. Excuse me, who's in charge here? A fish and game warden who had been helping out with the search said, I'd say it's the sheriff, he's over there, on the phone. Sheriff Weiss nodded and held up a give-me-a-minute forefinger. The man waited for the sheriff in the long and narrow hallway at Zeeland School. Perhaps he studied the senior class photos hanging along the wall in the corridor. They were arranged chronologically year after year after year, ending with Zeeland's most recent graduates, the class of 1976. Sheriff Weist approached, shook the man's hand, and asked him what he wanted. Sheriff, the man said, I just got off the phone with my brother. We were talking about how the bank was robbed and the search and all that. Well, my brother, he's on a party line. Now, some of you may have never heard of a party line. Back then, many rural homes, such as farmsteads, used the same telephone line all on one loop. When someone wanted to call one of these farmsteads, all of the phones on that loop would ring. Each household had its own ring signal, however. Two short rings, for example, could mean that the Andersons were getting a phone call, and so only the Andersons should pick up their phone. Three short rings might mean that the call was for a different household. But, because everyone was on the same line, anyone could, if they wanted to, pick up their phone, and listen in on any phone call on that loop. And that is exactly what happened in Zealand that day. So, Sheriff, the man continued, while I'm talking to my brother, someone else on the party line picks up and she starts talking to us. She says she thinks maybe her boys might have something to do with all of this. Well, Sheriff, it was a little hard to understand what she meant. She was kind of all over the place, but the one thing she did say was that her grandsons came into the house in the middle of the night or something like that and they were in a big hurry, and they just took off. Do you know who it was? Milton Weist asked. Sure, Sheriff, it was Katie Feist out at the Feist farm. Well, the Sheriff said, I'd better go pay her a visit then. The following is from the report Sheriff Weist filed later, narrated by a voice actor. I immediately drove out to the Feist farm, located approximately two and a half miles northeast of Zeeland, 
Road miles would be approximately four miles. In talking to the Feists, they immediately told me that somewhere between 4 and 4.30 a.m., David Feist and Sebastian Feist stopped at their farm, since this is where they spent most of their time, particularly Sebastian Feist, who was living with the Feists as they were originally from California. Both boys came into the house and got their personal belongings, clothing, and so forth. When they left the house, Mrs. Feist stated that Sebastian, or Butch as he is referred to, kissed Grandma, stating, We'll see you. Grandma then asked him, Where are you going? Why are you leaving and kissing me? Butch replied, Well, we might see you in a couple of days. With that, they went back out in the car that they had come in and sped out of the yard, going west, which is not the regular road leaving the yard, but rather a pasture out west of the Feist farm. Mr. Feist at that time was not able to give us a description of the car, other than that he had seen the taillights and the car took off quite fast. He only knew that they left going west out of the yard, leaving all the gates open which irritated Mr. Feist, because the boys knew that the gates were never left open because of the livestock being able to get out. As the sheriff drove back towards Zeeland, he was probably happy to finally have some luck in the disappearance of Wade and Ellen. And his luck was about to improve even further. With this information, I proceeded back to town, and on the way back in, I received a radio call from State Radio indicating that a Mr. Edwin Huber had called the emergency number and stated he wanted to talk to an officer about his boy being missing along with the car. I called Mr. Huber at the number the state radio had given me after returning to the bank at approximately 6.30 p.m. In calling Mr. Huber, Mr. Huber stated that his son Gregory had not come home and that the car he was driving was a white over blue 1968 Chevrolet. Upon learning this information, we then knew that the three boys were missing from the area had not been seen all day Sunday as of approximately 2.30 Sunday morning. Not going into too much detail, with the exception of giving the description of the car and the description of the boy, Mr. Huber then asked for an agent or an officer to come out to his farm as he would like to talk to them. I then advised him that there would be an agent out soon. Sheriff Weist finally had an idea about who might be behind all of this, but for him and everyone else, for the members of Zion Lutheran, for young kids on bicycles, and grown men in baseball uniforms, foremost on everyone's mind was rescuing Wade and Ellen from all this madness. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Chapter 6. We Think We Found Something If you were to travel to Zeeland, North Dakota in 2019, as I did, and you asked to see Walter, some people might actually look at you funny, scratch their chin, and then say, Do you mean Whitey? In Zeeland, it seems that everyone has a nickname, and Walter Klein's nickname is Whitey. During the warmer months in Zeeland, you might see him driving a golf cart around town, or working in his yard, or enjoying a happy hour beer with his friend Ray Wolf. Before he retired, Whitey was employed as a custodian for many years at the Zeeland School. There's a photo of him on page 15 of the 1976 yearbook. He's holding a crate of empty orange crush bottles while looking into the camera. 
He's wearing those 70s-style sideburns and a short-sleeved shirt and jeans. I've met Whitey a few times, and although I don't really know him, I like him. He seems gentle, mild-mannered, and humble. Mostly, though, his eyes reveal a man that seems to be somehow prepared, the type of man that would be difficult to startle. It's possible Whitey has always been like this. It is also possible that he is this way because, on July 11, 1976, Whitey learned what most of us, thankfully, never have to be reminded of. Try as we may, we can never really be prepared for what's waiting around the next corner. Whitey has a friend in Zealand named Jerry, otherwise known as Spike. Like many others in town that Sunday, Spike and Whitey decided to help out with the search that evening. Let's do the usual loop, they decided together. The duo often took Sunday drives and enjoyed target practicing in the nearby countryside. On this evening, Spike and Whitey drove east outside of Zealand and then headed north to explore section lines, dirt roads running between the crops. As they cruised along slowly, they kept their eyes peeled for anything out of the ordinary. Meanwhile, at the command center at the school, BCI agent Norb Sickler from Dickinson had been put in charge of the BCI activity. When Sheriff Weist returned from the Feist farm, he updated Sickler about the new developments. He told them how Katie Feist's grandsons had left in a big hurry during the night, and he also informed him that another boy named Huber was missing. It was decided that BCI would look into the missing Huber kid. Sickler took Agent Westfall with him and drove eight dusty miles straight into the setting evening sun. When they arrived at the Huber farmstead, they were met immediately in the driveway by a concerned Huber family. Edwin Huber and his wife were very upset and worried about their son. The Hubers told the agents that the last time they had seen their oldest son, Gregory, was at 2.50 a.m., when he and the two Feist brothers dropped off their other son, Samuel, Greg's younger brother. Agent Sickler asked Samuel Huber a few questions in front of his parents. Did he know anything about his brother being mixed up with the Feists and a bank robbery or a kidnapping? Did he know anything at all about this? Samuel assured him that he did not. Agent Westfall shot Sickler a quick glance and said, Agent Sickler, why don't you ask Samuel here a few questions while I interview the family inside the house? I met with retired BCI agent Norb Sickler in 2019. I remember that he went inside, and because I interviewed uh, Huber out my car, but you try to make sure that you keep people separate when you're interviewing. So Westfall took care of uh, that part, and I interviewed Huber. Once alone with Agent Sickler, Samuel revealed that he did have some information. He began by telling Sickler about some things that happened two days earlier. On Friday afternoon, Samuel had overheard his brother Greg talking on the phone with the Feist brothers. At first, Greg had asked Sebastian, or Butch as he was called, about his trip to the state of Washington. Butch had been there for two weeks and had just returned. But then, according to Samuel, the conversation took another turn. The following is verbatim from Agent Sickler's BCI report. Shortly thereafter, Greg had asked Butch to wake up David as he wanted to talk to him. The only part of the conversation that Samuel could remember between Greg and David was when Gregory had asked David, Are we going to do it tonight? And after several seconds, Greg's response was, Okay. It would later be learned that Gregory Huber often traveled with the Feist brothers to South Dakota. 
There were a couple of reasons for these boys to do this. For one, the older Feist, David, had been living in Selby, South Dakota, which is a 48-mile drive from Zealand. David had a girlfriend in Selby. But another reason to go to South Dakota was this. In 1976, the legal age in North Dakota was 21. The legal age in South Dakota was only 18 years of age, at least for so-called 3.2 beer. It was very common for young North Dakotans to drive down to neighboring South Dakota to enjoy legal drinking. And that's what Gregory Huber and the Feist brothers had done just two nights prior. And Gregory's brother, Samuel, had tagged along. Again, from Sickler's report. Samuel further stated that at approximately 8.30 p.m. Friday evening, while they were driving to Selby, South Dakota, Butch and David had asked Greg if he had brought the gun along, to which Greg had responded, no. Later that same evening, as they were preparing to leave Selby for Zealand, when David had been asked by Greg and Butch as whether or not he was coming along home, to which David responded, no. Greg and Butch then stated to David, we'll have to do it alone. David's response at this time was, you don't have the guts to kill them. To which Butch stated, if I use the twenty-two, I will take along more than two shots in case I miss the first one. To which David's reply was, you won't do it without me. As Samuel shared all of this, Agent Sickler scribbled notes as quickly as he could. The sun was getting low in the sky now, casting long shadows across the Huber driveway. Samuel continued and told Agent Sickler about the rest of that Friday night, just two nights earlier. Samuel continued that after they left David in Selby and were driving back to Zealand, that he had asked Butch what they were talking about, but Butch said he could not tell him about it. Then, as they were driving up to the Feist house Friday night, Butch asked Greg if he was coming into town later, which Greg had stated, no. And then Butch had stated, I'll have to do it alone then. At this time, Samuel had also heard Butch state that he would, quote, put the welder on Alex's pickup and would start from one end of Zealand and rob every place in town, unquote. As Sickler interviewed Greg Huber's brother, just east of Zealand, Whitey Klein and Spike Levi continued their drive along dirt roads. As they surveyed the flat countryside, they discussed the craziness of it all. A bank robbery in Zealand? Kidnapping? It was hard to believe that this was actually happening in rural McIntosh County. They were headed north, about one mile east and two miles north of Zealand, when they decided they would continue until they hit the pavement of Highway 11. After that, they would circle back into town. They approached a familiar gravel pit off the side of the road, and they decided they should take a look at it. In fact, they had just been there the week before, when they had done some target practicing there, blasting empty pop bottles and tin cans with their hunting rifles. Whitey parked near the edge, and the two men looked down into the pit from the car. Back at the Huber farmstead, while Gregory's brother was being interviewed outside by Sickler, inside the Huber home, Agent Jack Westfall was learning quite a bit about Gregory's movements the night before. Obviously, Greg's brother Samuel must have told his parents all of this during the last few hours, as his parents grew more and more concerned about Greg's absence. The following is from Westfall's report. Agent Sickler took Samuel Huber in his car and I interviewed the parents in the house. Last night, July 10th, Samuel and Gregory Huber left home in Samuel's car, a 1970 Ford, and picked up Sebastian Feist in Zealand. They then drove to Selby, South Dakota, 
arriving there between 9.30 and 10 p.m. There, they picked up David Feist and his girlfriend Julianne. She works at the Selby School and stays at a hotel on Main Street. Julianne is about 5 foot 7 inches tall, average weight, brown shoulder-length hair. They then drove to Mowbridge, Glenham, and back to Mowbridge again. In Mowbridge, they saw their cousin Clyde Huber on the street. They dropped Julianne off in Selby and came directly to the Huber's house, arriving at 2.30 or 3 a.m. The parents say it was exactly 2.50, as they were still up. Samuel came into the house, but Greg and the Feist boys got into Greg's car, the 1968 Chevy, and left, supposedly to take the boys to their grandmother's. The Huber parents stayed up most of the night worried about Greg. They did not like the Feist boys and were afraid Greg was going to get into some serious trouble. Greg did not return, and throughout the day they had at least two conversations with Grandma Feist, learning from her that they had come to the Feist house at about 5 a.m. in a big hurry, packed all their clean clothes, rushed out, and drove away fast. Edwin Huber tried to call the sheriff, could not get him, and then called State Radio expressing his concern. Now missing from the Huber home is a single-shot 12-gauge shotgun and three shotgun shells. It was unusual for Greg to take the gun. He is not a hunter. Greg took none of his personal things nor any clothes. He must have taken the gun on Friday afternoon when the rest of the family was gone. Whitey and Spike looked down into the pit. Hey, look at that, Whitey said. That didn't look that way the last time we were here, did it? He was pointing at a tree growing in the pit. A pile of rusted car fenders and other junk was hugging the base of the tree. Whitey's sidekick Spike studied it himself, and he agreed. It did look different. The week before, the debris had been spread out more around the pit. Now it sat there in a big pile. Someone had moved it. Whitey and Spike got out of the car and slowly made their way down into the pit. It was getting darker now, and it was hard to see, clearly. They approached the tree slowly and studied the junk piled all around it. Finally, one of them decided to grasp one large sheet of metal, and with a bit of effort, he pulled it back and peered behind it. At the Huber homestead, in Agent Sickler's car, Samuel Huber was now telling a detective about last night. From Sickler's report. Samuel also continued that they had gone back down to Selby on Saturday night, and at this time, David had asked Gregory and Butch why they had not done it the night before, stating that if they had done it, he was sure he would have heard about it already, and that he was calling them a chicken because they had not done it. Also, while they were driving back to the Huber farm during the early hours of the morning, Sunday, July 11, 1976, that David had made a statement such as, We're going to do it tonight, to which Gregory had asked David, What are we going to do with them? Samuel stated that he then recalls David talking about Alex's gravel pit. The following is from a report filed by the McIntosh County Sheriff's Department. It was approximately ten, or thereabouts, possibly a few minutes after, when two men from the search party came into the command post area and asked to talk to Sheriff Wiest. They informed Sheriff Wiest that they had possibly found something. They were not sure and asked him to go with them. Sheriff Weiss proceeded to the scene approximately two and a half miles northeast of Zeeland with the two men, Walter Klein and Jerry Levi, both Zeeland residents. It was completely dark when we got to the scene, and I asked the gentleman to stay within my squad car, and I handed Mr. Klein a portable spotlight. He was to then show me the approximate area in which they had seen whatever they thought they had seen. 
They shined the light to a tree, and I then proceeded down into the pit area by the tree that they were showing the light on, and with my own flashlight started uncovering a tin pile. Tin and used car tires were pile on a pile, and I removed the tires and started removing some of the tin. Then I discovered two bodies which I believed then to belong to Mr. and Mrs. Wade Sick. Enough was seen and felt that I could feel no sign of life on the bodies as such, and from what I saw I was convinced that there was no life left. I then proceeded back to the car and advised the men that they looked very much like the two people that we were looking for, and I asked them to stay at the section line area to seal it off until I could return. I met with Whitey Klein in May of 2019. Well, we were there the weekend before. We were shooting bottles in there, and they had drug everything up. There were some old car fenders and some old binder parts and stuff, and they put them all in one corner, and that's what they covered them up with. And we figured that was strange that they moved all that to one corner, so we lifted one of them fenders up, and there they were, you know, underneath the fenders. They were shot in the face with the shotgun, so it wasn't a very good sight. So, Sheriff Weiss drove back to town and left Whitey and Spike standing alone in the dark. As they watched Weiss's taillights disappear to the south, a silence fell over them. They had just discovered two homicide victims, both murdered in a vicious manner. The bodies were only 20 yards away, and they didn't know for sure who had done it, but there were rumors already that the Feists had skipped town. The men lit a couple of Merritt brand cigarettes to calm their nerves. Perhaps while flaring white smoke into black night, Spike and Whitey might have seen a light glowing at a farmhouse one half mile away, directly east. Perhaps they mentioned it, or perhaps they did not dare to mention that the farmhouse belonged to Katie Feist. Chapter 7 No Banker Tomorrow While driving back to town, Sheriff Weist got on his radio and informed anyone close enough to actually hear him that the search could be called off. Everyone could return to the command center. But that is all he said over the radio. He didn't broadcast that the Zicks were deceased. That's not the way Sheriff Milton Weist wanted Wade and Ellen's daughter to get this news. But before informing Nancy Zick that it appeared that her parents had been murdered in cold blood, the sheriff made one quick stop at the command center where he did a few things. First, he pulled his deputy aside and told him to get out to the murder site immediately and to seal it off. He told his deputy, and keep those two guys who found the bodies at the location until we can interview them, too. Then the sheriff got into his car again and went to find Nancy Zick, who, along with her husband Don and her kids, had rushed down to Zeeland that afternoon after getting a call at home in Bismarck. Nancy Zick Wald passed away in 2002. I met with her husband at the time, Don Wald, who remembers that day well, including when Sheriff Weist walked in to give them the news. Somebody went over to the house and the doors were open. They think something happened. Somebody's not feeling good about what they're finding. Well, we packed up and just went down right away. And um, so, and then that, that would have been stage one where you kind of feel 
and they went for a ride the car broke down uh, we're going to go through all this we're going to be sitting uh, in the in the cafe in, in Zealand or in their house and they're just going to show up yeah well that didn't happen and then we were sitting in the living room um, and um, and then one of them came back and asked Nancy if her dad had, and I forget what it was, uh, let's call it just a red plaid house coat or something like that, whatever color. And uh, she said, yeah. Well, we think we found him. So then you move out of this stage where you think it's going to be okay into a numb stage where you know it's not going to be okay. We will be hearing much more from Don Wald later on. Back at the crime scene, Whitey and Spike witnessed the headlights of a car driving towards them. One might assume that the two men felt an instant relief knowing that help was returning and they could soon go home. But that is far from what they were feeling. For all they knew, those with the headlights of a car driven by a murderer returning to tie up some loose ends. It wasn't until they could make out the outline of Deputy Ruid's squad car that the men relaxed a little. The deputy was soon joined by a BCI agent named Dick Hickman. Hickman asked Spike and Whitey some questions, and then he went into the pit to take a look at the crime scene himself. The following is from Hickman's report. I observed what appeared to be a corpse of a man whose top torso had been covered by debris from what had previously been a dump. I also observed the body of a woman approximately 60 years of age who was lying on top of the man. Both corpses appeared to be clad in pajamas. I backed away from the scene without touching anything and returned to a location on top of the hill. Spike and Whitey just wanted to go home. This night could not be over quickly enough for them. Hickman told them that they weren't going anywhere. Back in town, even though no formal announcement had yet been made, like a tiny tsunami, a tremor of agitation washed over Zealand that evening. Something was in the air. All the law enforcement cars were returning to the town and parking up at the school. Had Wade and Ellen returned to us finally? Were the Zicks safe and sound? Half of the community walked or drove to the school to see what was going on. One person who remembers this all very well is Shannon Swigert. At the time, he was eight years old. He was at the baseball game that day working as a bat boy. He was also at the school that night when Sheriff Wiest was pressed by the community to explain what had happened to Wade and Ellen. Okay, so in the summer of 1976, I would have been eight years old, um, and it had already gotten dark. Well, word had gotten out that there was going to be an announcement in the evening and everybody gathered at the school, and we were near the front office. And I remember exactly who pressed Milton Weist, who was our county sheriff at that time. It was a man named Joe Locker, who uh, had a farm uh, just northeast of Zealand. And Milton Weist said, folks, I can't tell you anything right now. We're still investigating. It's too early. You know, he was, he was being confidential. He said, I, I can't tell you anything right now. And people were very, very concerned. And I remember Joel Locker saying, well, what can you tell us about where Wade and Ellen are now? 
And Milton Weiss said, what I can tell you is, folks, you won't have a banker tomorrow morning. And the, the gasps came out because the Zicks were highly regarded. But what I, I just remember, and that's, that's what sticks with me, you know, from my, my memory as a kid was the gasps and then the crying that started and people embracing themselves. But that's how Milton Weiss announced to the community. He said, I can tell you, you won't have a banker tomorrow morning. And with that announcement, on top of the darkness of night, a different type of darkness fell over the community of Zealand. It descended on them in a heartbeat like a heavy blanket, eclipsing everything they had previously believed about life in their tiny town on the prairie. Most people went home in a daze that night, and for the first time in their lives, they started locking their doors. John Reedy remembers. And we, we locked our doors the bolt locks there was bolt locks um, and even to this day those doors are still locked up you can't just walk into my mom's house anymore you know and mostly at night and john's mother violet doesn't disagree with her son you know we never used to lock our doors but after that we always always locked our doors Chapter 8, Ellen Thompson. Ellen Zick was born Ellen Thompson, as she was the youngest of nine children. Both of her parents were born in 1869 in Norway. Her father, Thomas Thompson, arrived in the United States in 1890 at the age of 21. Ellen's mother, Emma, arrived one year later. They were married at the age of 26 in Webster, Iowa, on September 29, 1895. It was here that Ellen's oldest siblings were born, a brother, Thoris, a sister, Ida, then another named Mabel, and then a brother, Alman. Sometime between 1901 and 1905, the Thompsons joined several other Norwegian Lutheran settlers and moved to North Dakota. They settled in Lamora County, south of a small town named Berlin. Here, before Ellen came along, Thomas and Emma had four more children. With no church to go to, the settlers held their first services in their homes and then later in the schoolhouse in Badger Township. Their congregation grew, and in 1906, Ellen's father and other settlers started construction of a church just west of Berlin. It was completed in 1908. Church services were held in the Norwegian language. Also constructed that year in Berlin was a new school. The family lived on a farm four miles south and three miles east of Berlin. Despite living in this remote area, the Thompson kids were blessed to have two things within a half a mile's walk from home. The country schoolhouse was one of them. If you've ever taken a winter walk against the North Dakota wind, you understand exactly how happy you would be to have your schoolhouse within sight of your home every morning. But even better for the Thompson kids was Cottonwood Lake just south of their farm. It was full of northern pike, and Norwegians were no strangers to fishing. 
It sounds quaint, peaceful, and innocent, and hopefully it was in most ways. But if you take a quick glance at the headlines of the Bismarck Tribune newspaper, for issues printed the week Ellen was born, you get the distinct impression that crime and corruption was widespread in 1912. Over two days following Ellen's birth, the Tribune printed these stories on the front page. The United States Secretary to Panama was arrested for kidnapping a 16-year-old girl. A lawyer was arrested for strangling a woman and playing it off as a drowning. In nearby Minnesota, the mayor of Cass Lake was sent to the penitentiary convicted of arson. Just below that headline, in Bowman, North Dakota, the sheriff was arrested for allowing a prisoner to escape. And near there, in Scranton, North Dakota, a sheriff's deputy and a clerk of court were arrested for extortion. Quaint, yes, but not always peaceful and innocent. Nevertheless, it was into this world that Ellen Thompson was born on September 9, 1912. She was greeted by two loving parents, eight siblings, one new church, and a new school. Ellen Thompson graduated from Berlin High School in 1930. There were just four students in her class. Ellen's first marriage was in 1934 to John Mammel. They lived in Fargo, where John painted cars for a living. Their only child, a son, Gerald, or Jerry, was born in 1937, and things were looking good for Ellen. Her path to Wade Zick would take another 20 years to traverse. Still to come on Dakota Spotlight Season 2. This pit is approximately 10 feet deep, 100 feet long. The FBI had gone to the, uh, gone to the minister to go out and identify the bodies. The FBI theorizes the Zicks were awakened at home late Saturday night or early Sunday morning. And you know, they were afraid. No, no one knew what was going to happen. Is someone going to come back? Is someone going to do something to us? Dakota Spotlight is produced solely by myself at Everything Midwestern LLC in the state of North Dakota. Permission to use the songs North Dakota, Mile Marker, Cold Black River, and others granted generously by Peter Hicks, performed by Sleepy Driver. Check out and support Sleepy Driver's music on Spotify or at sleepydriver.bandcamp.com where you can purchase a special Dakota Spotlight Season 2 digital collection with the music from this season. See the link in the show notes or at dakotaspotlight.com. Thank you, Peter Hicks and Sleepy Driver. To God Be the Glory, sung by the Sunday School children at St. Peter's Church, Chafee, North Dakota, three miles from Wadezik's childhood home. To see photographs, videos, and other premium content, and to support this project all at the same time, please visit dakotaspotlight.com. My email is dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. I'm always looking for the next story. Do you know what that story should be? Thank you so much for listening and for coming along with me to North Dakota. And I'm bound for North Dakota To where they got more sky than ground Cause I'm tired of California And that dirty little town Yeah, I'm bound for North Dakota To where silence is the sound And I wanna take you with me Cause I like your kind around 
And I'm sleeping in my car With the radio on and the windows down And I'm up before the dawn Before this heartache gets the best of me I'm gone and moving on from that city Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.